Hello, ciao, and welcome back to the Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman. My name is Benedicta Junta, and I'm the host and creator of this podcast. Hello, people of the internet. Welcome, welcome, welcome back for a new episode of the Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman. And today we are back with the segment Diaspora Route, which is the segment in which I'm in conversation with people uh, from mainly the African diaspora, but also I always say that this segment also goes beyond the African diaspora. So today is the day that we will go beyond and I thought it was important, especially due to what happened in the last year with the Asian community and the shooting that was occurred in Orlando. I thought it was important to amplify the voices of the Asian community. So today I'm joined with my friend Tyler. Hey Hi, Tyler. <laughs> hey Tyler. Welcome to the podcast. Thank so, you. Yeah, welcome, welcome, welcome. And thank you for joining me today. I just had a few words also to share about Tyler for the listeners. So yeah, of course, like yes, like I know Tyler through work and he's a friend of mine and he's extremely kind and he's a special, special, special guest. So I'm sure today you will learn a lot of things because I also had the opportunity to learn from him as well. And he had me thinking about a lot of things, I feel like, since I met him. So, like, yeah, I'm sure we will enjoy this episode. And he's also someone that values integrity and uh, like yeah, I really appreciate that about him. And also, he always like has the right words. At the, at the right time. Like, we will be chatting about the most random stuff and it will always have the right words that I need. So for this, I'm very grateful, Tyler. I appreciate you. Thank I you. Appreciate you. <laughs> like, You're too kind. You're too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. <laughs> so how are you doing today? How are you? I am good. It is sunny here in Philadelphia. Um, it uh, has been a rough winter, and right now I'm living in an apartment that doesn't have windows. And Ooh. so the fact that it's sunny out, um, it's you know nice out, and I can just be out and about after work um, has really kind of lifted my spirits in a year that's been kind of difficult. So um, yeah, I would say overall I'm doing really well. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm doing all right. Like actually, like here in Rome. It's also sunny, and today was such a great day. Like, today I woke up, like, happy. I was like, yo, the sun was shining, and we had this past, like, spring. Didn't feel like spring here in Rome, so mm. it was very raining. So I was very, I was a little bit, like, moody about it. So, yeah, but, I think, like, yeah, overall I feel, like, yeah, I feel better about it. I feel good, and... Yeah, so, but wait, how does your apartment doesn't have windows? <laughs> um, how does my apartment not have windows? I'm confused about that. Yes. Um, so, there, okay, so there technically are windows. There are two windows on, or it's okay. like a sliding glass door that's um, in my roommate's bedroom. Um, okay. But in, in terms of, like, my bedroom as well as the living room, kitchen, um, and the rest of the living space, there there isn't windows, so we don't get natural light. Um, oh. So you know, you can imagine when you're working from home, uh, if oh. you're you know, if you have two or three long days in a row, those are two or three days where you're not getting outside. 
um, and not seeing any type of, you know, natural light or, uh, and it can really throw off your sleep schedule. So, (laughs) um, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting experience. Um, Yeah, that sounds very interesting. (laughs) And that sounds something that will make me very moody. (laughs) (laughs) Something like I would would lose it. Like, no, because I love the sun and I love seeing like natural lighting. So I would be like, what's happening here <laughs> like yeah but <laughs> you're getting through it i can i can say so like you mentioned about this last year that's been quite difficult like you are a recent graduate and mm-hmm. uh, so how's this year been for you and also like looking for jobs and getting into the job market like how's that been for you um it was extremely difficult so i graduated mm. in may of 2020 and we are now in April, almost May of 2021. And yeah, so May of 2020, I, I graduated and it was in the midst of the beginning part of the pandemic. Mm. Uh, and it was just difficult in all types of ways. Um, you know, graduating into an economy that was really uncertain about, you know, the future of like in-person business. Um, was difficult because like nobody was trying to bring on an entry level, you know, new hire. Um, it, and at the time I was trying to pursue a, a career working in, you know, somewhere along the lines of men's fashion. Uh, mm. You know, I spent my senior year kind of trying to to angle myself, even though I was a political science major, to, to kind of take my first steps into, into that realm. But, uh, you know, when, when all retail businesses close down, uh, it, it's kind of difficult for them to, to try and justify somebody bringing yeah. somebody who's from a different field into, um, into their field. And uh, especially at an entry level position where they know that they're going to have to train me and, and really invest in, in new talent. So that was extremely difficult. I, I spent seven months unemployed um, after Ooh. graduation. Oh, wow. And um, it, you know, everything, everything just kind of seemed to, to hit the fan. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it, it was one of those moments where I really had to rely on my friends, my family, my support system on just trying to keep my hopes up um, and, you know, realize my value beyond being valuable in the workforce and being beyond being valuable um, in education, because that, you know, that's previously what you know, I had holding on to, or I was holding on to as, as a student. Um, and so making sure that I, I understood my value and, you know, the, the reflection of me not having a job for so long wasn't a reflection of me. It was a reflection of the circumstances I was in at the time. So um, it was really difficult. I, but I ended up in a wonderful place. So right now I work for um, the Hope Center for College Community and Justice as a program coordinator for the Student Leadership Advisory Council. Um, we deserve a... all the claps. Like, <laughs> yes. yes. Thank you. Um, and it's it's been wonderful. Uh, it's a new position. So I am growing mm-hmm. alongside this program that is brand new. Um, and uh, I, I kind of feel like it was the, the, the seven months of being unemployed um, taught me a lot. Uh, and I am where I need to be at this point in my life. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Already, like, when you answered the first question, I'm just there, like, I'm already there, like, mind-blown, and I'm just there, like, uh, (laughs) I'm just there, like, this is why it's here. Like, I'm just there, like, yes. Like, whatever, all you shared, like, I absolutely relate to the challenge of, like, 
being unemployed or not be able to get in the field that you want after graduation so mm. i can relate to that challenge but i really like i appreciate like the thought process that you walk you walk me through you walk us through because seriously like as you said the importance of finding value like beyond education like i'm just there, like whoa like already like mm. i'm just there, like <laughs> first question like just asking about how this year has been um, you're already dropping gems and i'm just there, like whoa like uh, it's not only kind it's also wise so i'm just here like raving about him like yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah we're just you. here like raving about Ryan tyler but yeah mm-hmm. so like thank you so much by the way to share to share that about your journey and like also your vulnerability about that like i really appreciate it and so yeah like you were born in marriage you know Mm-hmm. and then you move in the u.s and uh, so i probably ask you already like how you navigate race and i'm sure like we had that conversation and maybe you can talk a little bit about your background uh late um while answering this question but um my question for you was like what it meant for you like moving from malaysia uh which is an asian country uh where like people look like you and uh, then you move to the u.s which is we can say to a certain extent mixed but still predominantly white so right. uh, how's that experience been for you um it was i i will say it was easier for me than it was for my older brother mm-hmm. um so we came over to the u.s when i was seven years old Um, so, you know, I, I'm half white and I'm half Chinese, but I am, my nationality is Chinese American. Um, or I mean, not Chinese American, Malaysian American. Uh, and it really took me a while to figure out how to articulate that to others. Um, so whenever I was living in Malaysia, even as young as seven years old, I was known as the American, um, because I was, you know, mixed and, Mm. you know, I, I resonate with a part where, you know, there were people that looked like me, but also I don't feel like wherever I've lived, there's really, own, there, there's really ever been a population that has looked like me or had similar lived experiences than I have. Um, and that can be a blessing, but also it can be kind of difficult. Um, have it, uh, the transition for me uh, at seven was whenever I moved to the U.S., I quickly held on to, uh, I, I remember being in an elementary school classroom and really holding on to my Asian identity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I would tell people I'm Malaysian and then also have to explain the part that I'm Chinese. And they're like, wait, so you're Malaysian Chinese, you're not American. And I was like, no, but I am American. Um, and, you know, that that's just, you know, the, being at a young age and not really understanding the difference between your ethnicity, your nationality, your race. Um, and you know, all of these different ways that, that we choose to identify ourselves. Mm. Um, and so moving to the U S it was difficult because I felt like I had to hold on to that identity. Um, but as I got older, I also realized that I had to recognize my privilege within my Asian community. Um, so being white also, uh, gave me access sometimes to spaces or people that, you know, other people who were maybe uh, more Asian presenting uh, may, may not get, get the access to space or uh, the grace from others. 
Mm. Um, and so I remember coming into college and people would ask me like, which do I identify closer to? And I would tell people my whiteness because that was, that was my way to try and recognize the, the privilege I had in the space. Mm. Um, but what I also really couldn't elaborate on or I didn't have the words for uh, was the fact that even in white spaces, they don't see me as one of them. Um, and so, you know, if, if whiteness is a, is a room, they would still keep me out of it. Um, mm. Just like if Asianness is a room, right? Like I think oftentimes there's still that gatekeeping of keeping people who are mixed out of it. Mm. Um, and there, you know, when it, when it comes to my Asian identity, I, I don't look down upon uh, people who are skeptical of somebody who is mixed in the sense that, you know, they have the right to question if I realize the amount of privilege I have. Um, mm-hmm. They have the right to, to question, you know, uh, I guess like my intent, especially in uh, spaces that are like social justice driven or activist based spaces. Um, but, you know, that, that also creates like internal tension with me as I try and figure out where my place is in movements, uh, where my place is, um, in the Asian community. Um, and I, I don't have it all figured out, but definitely something I'm working on. Um, and that's, that's all part of the journey of like moving across the world. Uh, and, you know, thankfully I have parents that are, are super supportive. Um, but even they don't get it because, you know, my mother has the experience of a white woman and my father has the experience of an Asian man. And neither of them have the, the experience of living with the tension of both of those. Uh, and so it's been an interesting process, especially as race has become more of a conversation in the United States uh, about like talking to, to my parents about like how I feel about things and, you know, how I've had to navigate the world. Uh, oftentimes they, I, I realized that, well, I, I realized relatively recently that they didn't know because, you know, I didn't ever verbalize it. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's been a, it's been a process um, and I, I'm working through it every day, but uh, yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been a blessing in a lot of ways too, uh, just because I feel like I, I get to bring a different experience, a different perspective to some conversations yeah sure thank oh my gosh thanks so much for sharing that like even there there is so much to unpack i felt mm-hmm. also about what you shared you know also the fact that you said like i can't i guess probably my question i kind of assume like i don't know i guess i see well i see you i know your background so i see mm-hmm. you as like mixed race because yeah. i know you of like I know you're off white and you're off Asian and yeah and just I don't know just thinking like also the fact that you said like the reason like as much as the population that looks like you because you are like you're biracial so like that experience as well like that's also like interesting like and I I'm, I'm sure like that kind of represent like the the biracial experience right like the fact of like I don't know, not finding as easily like people that look like yourself mm-hmm. and that you, you can relate to and the fact of not fully fitting in 
within a community or another community and that tension that creates i don't know i like on one side i feel like to a certain extent i can relate despite not being like biracial like i can i still like i can still relate because sometimes i have to work through my nationalities and my background mm. the thought of being like born in italy but having Ghanaian parents that then are mixed as well because my mom is part of one tribe and my dad is part of a brother tribe and there are minorities between Ghana if you just navigating that as well like I, I feel like I can relate to a certain extent to the uh to the tension part but of course like I think it brings an it brings a different challenge, I guess, even the fact of having like, um, I, like a certain level of privilege as well. Like as much as I'm, I'm not white, but the fact that I'm born and raised in this country, something that can can bring me a certain level of privilege. For example, compare than someone, mm. like even just compared to my parents as well, or someone just being like that just arrived to Italy that is black is African like that like I, I feel like it's also just a level of privilege so I feel I can relate to something to what you were sharing about the tension and I think also what I find interesting is the fact that you said like you probably like that conversation with your parents as well I find that very interesting like may I ask you like how did co- this conversation happen did it ever happen like for you in your childhood of talking about your mixed identity or it's just something more recent um I would say conversations with my parents about you know my identities are relatively recent even though you know I've always had a really good relationship with both of them um and I I would say especially the mixed race piece it, it's been my mother has always tried to my my mother who is the the white parent has mm. always tried to make sure that you know we celebrated Chinese New Year you know we 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 carried on some of these um I don't want to necessarily call them traditions but you know she she made sure that I was connected to my Asian identity um and she was the one she's the one that I lived with uh in the United States because my father still lives in Asia and my father, on the other hand, is, I think, like a lot of immigrant parents, or even if we want to get more specific, immigrant fathers who don't really want to talk about uh, identity, don't want to talk about uh, some of the struggles that they've been through, mm-hmm. uh, or talk about their stories. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And so, you know, like, my my dad came to the United States for the explicit um reason of going to school and i know that had to be extremely difficult coming straight from malaysia never have uh never have leaving malaysia before and coming to the united states to to go to university but it's not something that he really talks about um Mm. and he doesn't talk about um being an asian man in america right um and so those are conversations that i have yet to have with him just because it's one of those things he dances around. Um, but I know at some point we'll be able to have that conversation. I just have to to work it into his conversations about the politics between China and America, uh, which is what he, <laughs> he always wants to talk about. 
Of course. Like, you know, I, I feel like, I don't know, even like despite like we have different backgrounds, I feel like I still relate because like my dad as well, like moved to Italy to study as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, although like previously he lived in the UK for a brief amount of time. Yeah, he actually his intention was to study in the UK, but it didn't happen mm-hmm. for him. And he moved to Italy. Like, I feel like my dad kind of spoke about like, he still like spoke about racism and discrimination about politics and that's how I got as well into politics but yeah. I think like sometimes I think still like it didn't go as much in, as into details as of experiences that he had directly it would happen like very randomly that sometimes he would share something like for example I remember one time we were driving and he said something about like going into like offices um, in Italy, like oftentimes people can be um, a bit like non-accommodating, especially if they don't hear an Italian accent. Although like mm. I think my dad speaks Italian pretty well, like he studied in Milan and sometimes it comes up with random words. And I'm just they're like, huh? <laughs> like, but yeah, like I feel like it's like he it speaks a pretty good Italian, but sometimes it, it doesn't feel heard and uh, I think it's just one time I was driving and it's still somebody working at an off- at, at office and he said like oh like this person is very nice because sh- she treats me like in a certain way with a certain respect that and I was like when he shared that I started thinking and observing more like even the attitudes of people when maybe I, I would be with with my parents in a public office like I started paying more attention and starting to understand more like the struggles that my dad may face that may not voiced as Mm. often and yeah and I also feel like I need to have some I feel like I still need to have some conversations with my dad especially like when he first moved to Italy and Milan like I was really like then like yeah so no i can i can't relate to what you shared well it's it's interesting you bring up the like not necessarily the language aspect but Mm. kind of you know accents and i i guess really it does come down to to language and whatever is normalized right yeah um because one of the things i always get asked about is like why don't you speak you know malay or cantonese or Mm. mandarin um Mm. and my mom initially when I was growing up in Malaysia wanted my father to teach me Cantonese because that's what he spoke and you know even possibly Malay but you know we were educated in English and everyone in Malaysia speaks English for the most part I I would say you know besides I I would say English is the business language there and so you know whenever I came to the U.S. and everyone was like why don't you speak these other languages I kind of have always wondered if my dad didn't teach me those languages because of his worry of how I would be perceived. If I would Mm. have an accent, if I would, you know, if, if if his choice not to teach me other languages was to make me, make it easier for me to assimilate whenever I came to the U S for an education. Mm. I never have verified that. Yeah. But it's one of those things that I've kind of thought about um, because he, he kind of laughs every time I'm like, why didn't you teach me, um, you know, yeah. Cantonese? Uh, and, you know, as much as I would love to have those languages, I also 
again, recognizing my privilege, walking around and, you know, being able to, to not deal with some of these microaggressions just mm. by having, you know, a clean accent, right? Yeah. Um, or, you know, people telling me like, wow, you've only been here for three years, but your English is so good, you know, growing up mm-hmm. uh, was, was always something that I really thought was was interesting and uh, have been curious about like my, even like the, the roots of my languages. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's really interesting that you're, you've noticed uh, the way that your father perceives kindness and even small interactions based around that, that simple fact of like how they treat him based off of his, his ability to communicate. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I also like the f- what you spoke about languages is also something that I can relate to as well. Because when I was growing up, like I've, I probably shared with you in the past, but I, as some, I grew up when I was born, being the first born, my parents like started speaking with me in English because they were like, okay, she's going to learn Italian where she's she will go to school. But mm. then, like, the teachers were like, we cannot understand her. She doesn't understand Italian. We cannot communicate here and she may never learn Italian. So that was very catastrophic. So my parents, I'm sure like they were fearful of the fact that I wouldn't fit in in a country that they chose to raise their children in. So I think based on that fear, they were like, okay, we have to switch to Italian and one I feel like sometimes I also wonder like as well like I even started thinking even further of the fact of like just like why did you switch to Italian I started even thinking further and and I was like wait why did why didn't you teach like your native tongues because Mm. My mom speaks Fanti, for example, and uh, my dad speaks Ada, and they speak a common language because they were they grew up around the capital region, so they speak Ga and at home, but they didn't think of like actually be like, oh, let's actually teach her like the language that we speak at home. They went for English. Even there, I was mm. like. Wait, I, and then growing up, I was like, wait, why did that? Why did we go for like English instead of the native tongue that you use? And so even that, it was just unpacking that. But I'm also thinking, as you said, about assimilation and having it like easier. But assimilation, can, I feel like it comes with a cost to a certain mm. extent. Because I feel like maybe you may end up with a little bit of an accent, but you're able to connect easier maybe with your community of origin, for example. And even just connect with your family as well. Like I think of my grandparents. Like, yes, they speak English overall because they have to use it in professional settings or whatsoever. And they grew up for a certain extent under like British colonial rule. Mm. But at the same time, I think like if we I feel like we would have even built a better connection, like if I even spoke one of the languages that they spoke. Right. Yeah. So mm, that's a lot. Like we're already unpacking a lot. But yeah. Yeah, it's good. Like I think it's a great conversation. Like yeah, thank you so much, Tyler. Like, like that's the that's the thing. Like, I'm just there, like you're so brilliant. Like yeah. So, 
<laughs> so yeah, um, so I, I like one thing about like the fact of us having conversations. I think we are able to have like the silliest conversation and the very serious ones as well. And I remember like around the time where like Black Lives Matter was happening, like like the new protests about Black Lives Matter were happening in the U.S. Um, following the killing of George Floyd. Uh, I think we ended up chatting and what was happening in the U.S. and what how we were feeling. And I remember you mentioned that, um, like, some awkwardness that you felt, like, whether, like, to go out there or no, and, uh, like, how you were feeling about occupying a space and uh, also, like, about, like, you also mentioned about like that the Asian community is with a different kind of racism compared to the black community. So my question for you would be, can you unpack a little bit more like this statement and bring an understanding for like the recent hashtag that was raised, uh, which was stop Asian eight. Yeah, so I, I guess we can, let's start with the, the tension that I was mm-hmm. feeling at the time. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, the, the tension at the time, I think, was also packed into the fact that that was all around the time that I had just graduated. Um, mm. And so I was sitting there, I was unemployed, you know, I was no longer a student. I was no longer like a student leader, you know, all of these titles that I I was holding on to were kind of like stripped away all of a sudden uh, because like the pandemic started, there was like a couple months of virtual school and then graduation happened, but there was really no ending to school. It was really just like, there was no closure. I turned in the last assignment on, you know, on my laptop, closed it. And that was my graduation. And so I was sitting there with this tension of like, I'm not a student anymore. Like I'm broke. I'm unemployed. Like nobody wants to hire me. Um, I was like, I am Asian. I am white, but like, how does this fit into this conversation? And whenever I say that the conversation, I really mean like what is happening on social media, because, you know, at the time that's kind of where everyone was interfacing as we figured out Mm -hmm. what was safe and what wasn't in terms of COVID and people yeah. were, you know, protesting in the streets too. And I, I joined some of that. Um, but I felt this tension of like, how do I speak up when I don't have the lived experience of a Black person, right? Mm. Uh, I thought it was more important for me to take a step back and try and educate myself. And I didn't, I didn't want it to come off to my peers that I didn't care because, mm-hmm. you know, I think, if people are like Tyler is an activist or Tyler is an outspoken person and this is something that he decides not to speak out about, I think it can be perceived as like Tyler doesn't care. Mm. Um, and for me, that was, that was the opposite of what was happening. It was Tyler trying to figure out how to be an effective ally rather than just be in the space to be in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, these were these were all things that I was juggling with, and especially the fact that I was like, okay, like I'm Asian and I'm white, and you know, not Asian people have oppressed, you know, black people, uh, white people we know have oppressed <laughs> black people, um, and I I really just didn't know like how how do I have these conversations uh, with the the people I love. Um, 
one of the things that I did uh, was try and talk to my parents about it. And, mm. you know, my, my mother being the, the kind soul she is, was, was really open to having a conversation and really open to listening and trying to learn. Um, and she, she was wonderful to have the conversation with where my father, it, it gets a little bit more difficult because he's not interacting with race the same way I'm interacting with race. So Mm. he lives in Shanghai. Um, and so whenever we talk about race, there's a disconnect because, you know, like he, he knows what a black person is or, you know, (laughs) yeah, yeah. but the way that it's perceived in, in China is very different than the way it's perceived in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, just like I imagine, you know, it, it's perceived in Italy slightly yeah. different. Um, and, you know, I, I learned from a trip to Morocco that that's even more different, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there, there's, there's these layers that I had to, I had to educate myself first to be able to have those conversations. And, uh, it's one of those things where it, it was a, a continuing education and a in a moment where I felt a lot of my peers were being reactive. I, I was trying to step back and trying to figure out how best to respond. Um, mm. And yeah, so I, I guess we, there, there was the, you know, the, the rise of, really the movement around the the death of or the murder i should say of george Mm -hmm. floyd Mm -hmm. um and that was like the the first first time that so many people took the streets uh i would say in a a while um and that was powerful to see uh and living in philadelphia it was again this uh, i would say not even an internal tension but an external tension of people trying to figure out where the place was for violent and non-violent disobedience mm. right yeah. um so people people were and when i say violent dis- disobedience i don't mean harming people it usually comes in the form of harming property mm-hmm. uh and so there was this external tension of like, oh, is this right? Is this wrong? Yeah. And um, I was juggling with that too, uh, because, you know, I, it's something that I had never explored. Like, do mm. I, do I care about property? <laughs> Oftentimes yeah. not, not, not really if it's not mine, <laughs> you know, um, in, in the simplest form. But I, I had to, as somebody who had practiced civil disobedience, mm. I, I had to, I had to open my eyes to the fact that this was a just reaction. Mm, um, this yep. was this was people taking power back. Yes, and um, that was that took me a moment to process. And mm. I, you know, I couldn't ask for other people to wait as I processed, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah I know, right? <laughs> and so I, you know, I was trying to work through all of that. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess to your the second part of your question, uh, which is talking about stop Asian hate, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the different types of racism that we we experience. Um, to, to give a little uh, story tangent, I was at a Black Lives Matter rally in um, West Philadelphia one night, and somebody who had previously run for elected office who didn't win, um, who was Black, was speaking in this 
this neighborhood and um, she's not from the neighborhood. She, she's from a different part of Philadelphia and she started to, we were standing at the corner where there was a McDonald's Mm. and she, she started to go in and talk about how the Asian community was impeding upon the black community. Mm. And I was sitting there in the crowd with a, a close friend of mine and just trying to process, not in a judgmental way, but process what what was being said. And then I guess my, my second question is like, what was the intent of what was being said? Mm. Um, and her comments were specifically about Asian restaurants. And she, she went on this thing about, um, oh, these these people come into our community, they serve us fried foods, they serve us, you know, like nothing that they serve is healthy. You know, they don't feed themselves the way that they feed us. Mm -hmm. And they pay for their kids to go to medical school so they can treat us. And this is her, her, you know, the the way that she described the Asian community. Mm. And I was sitting there and I was like, I I just couldn't believe it. Um, Mm. Because like I said, you know, well, she decided we were standing at the corner right in front of a McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And I think her point was to talk about, you know, food deserts and the inaccessibility of like healthy foods. Yeah, I think that mm-hmm. was part of the point that she was trying to make. But instead, um, and I think COVID had a, a big part to do with this, is mm. she came after the Asian community, mm. which is, you know, maybe the small Asian business that's you know, right up the street, you know, the, yeah. the small Chinese restaurant, it, it, it may have been. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, I remember biking home that day and just trying to think to myself, it's like, how, how have we reached this point where this relationship is this broken? Mm. Uh, because we, I, I say that we, we, we live with different types of racism, or we mm. experience different types of racism, but it's the it's the same root cause, right? It's white yes. supremacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, yep. You know, it's it's white supremacy times capitalism, right? Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, Put that so capitalism we, in there. Put that right. capitalism in there, please. Um, and so I was like, why why is this relationship so broken? And so mm. I think I think that was very of the moment, right? Yeah. It's like we we have all these questions. I remember people asking me, it's like, have you ever been to a wet market? Um, trying to understand like where this virus came from in China. Mm. Um, and at the time it was rumored that it came from bats out of a wet market in in China. And mm. I grew up going to the wet market. Um, mm. And so, yeah, like I, for me, it's the farmer's market, right? Like that's yeah. exactly, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but the way that it was framed, it was like this scary place where there were live animals and dead animals and, mm. um, all these funky things that, that people presume the Asian community um, eat and, mm-hmm. you know, very otherizing. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And so, you know, tying it back into, you know, her comments where she was like, yeah, they don't even eat what they feed us. Um, again, it just, it, it was very otherizing. And it was one of those things where it took me a while to try and process. And mm-hmm. at first I, I wanted the, the first reaction was like, well, like I should go and, publicly say something about this person because they've tried to run for office in this city you mm, know like mm-hmm. I should I embarrass them but um I I thought about it more and I was like no this is somebody who's in pain mm-hmm. um you know this is somebody who is who is grieving and mm. it you know it's not my place to try and try and 
you know, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't benefit the conversation to, yeah. to publicly embarrass them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was something that I, I sat with for a while. And so, you know, when we're talking about stop Asian hate, mm-hmm. um, I think right now it's manifested into stop the violence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. the Asian community is experiencing. Yeah. Um, but I, I think a lot deeper than that is just let's let's stop otherizing. And, yeah. you know, even when it comes to the word Asian, let, let's let's realize that is a diaspora of people. Yeah. Um, it's a massive diaspora of people. Yes, um, of course. And and the fact that like I I have the lived experience of being Malaysian Chinese American. I, you know, I don't know what it means to be South Asian. I don't know what mm-hmm. it means to be uh, you know, from parts of the Middle East. Um mm. and it it gets complicated when it comes to advocacy. Uh yeah. and uh, because you want to be inclusive, but sometimes yep. being inclusive means that we are actually losing the the nuance and voices that we are trying to represent. Mm. Um, and uh, I, you know, I've seen the the hashtag stop AAPI hate, and mm-hmm. you know, my my friends and peers that are in the Pacific Islander community are like, whoa, 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 let's let's not do that because, you know. <laughs> we're yeah. we're grouping in Pacific Islanders when it, it there's not we're not really facing the same again we're not facing mm. the same type of yeah um, oppression uh, and so yeah I would I would say to to simplify yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> everything um, my my feelings about you know the stop Asian hate and like what bring understanding of like what it's about it it's really to to stop the otherizing of Asian people mm. um, and to understand that there is even though that we a certain i would say certain asian demographics um certain parts parts of our population um do well economically which yeah. i think is oftentimes what is touted as the the success mm-hmm. um many other parts of our population don't do well economically yeah. and the people who do well economically um only do well, well i'm not going to say only i would say predominantly do well because of racist immigration policy um, that the United States harbored, uh, which made it where you had to have uh, a certain amount of education as an Asian American or as an Asian to come migrate to the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, people would come here with great education and that's why they, they saw the economic benefits that they did. Um, Yeah. And I think that part is often forgotten that what really happened was we, we, we made a selection process that made it where uh, the people that came over were going to have some type of economic benefit. But the people who were still in Asia are producing everything that we're consuming here in the United States. And there's still that cycle, Mm -hmm. Um, right? You know, like, you know, businesses that start in the U S and get manufactured in Asia, you know, those people just as easily could have been Asian Americans, right? Like yep. if they wanted to migrate, but we, we created that barrier to make sure that they couldn't. Uh, and, you know, their oppression is still our oppression mm-hmm. uh, because those are our family members. Those are our friends. Those are, you know, those are our legacies. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that um, that is something that is often forgotten about. And it's been, it's been wonderful to see speak, people speak out and yep. for there to be, I would say collaborate uh, collaboration and um, 
communication between the Asian and Black communities as, yep. you know, there's been conversations about uh, all of these topics over the last year. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, to, to highlight, I'm living the the experience of an Asian man. And mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't even get into how, you know, I, I can't even get into the details of like what it's like to be an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Um, because like that, is a it's a completely different lived experience absolutely Uh, especially when it comes to you know safety and security and violence and Mm. how that compounds um but yeah um yeah Yeah, no like it's difficult it's difficult yeah no it's very complex and i think you touched on so like many aspects of like the narrative of otherness and like the importance of like stop othering people and I think I appreciate that you highlighted that because oftentimes when it comes to racism like we see only the violence and Mm -hmm. oftentimes people especially people that are not part of community of colors they can only see like oh that's racism but the rest of it like microaggressions laws and other things no that's not really racism is it it's just ignorance but actually that's what fuels the violence because Mm. if you talk about other bodies and other people as alien as people that are not part of the communities as people that are enemies of your community like of course that is going to fuel hate so that's for sure like something that is important to like highlight and I appreciate like uh like your empathy and your emotional intelligence in understanding this person that fought formerly like ran for like she ran for office oh my goodness I'm glad she didn't mm-hmm. get into office the person <laughs> didn't get into office but anyway so yeah and I think it's very like sometimes we can be so like reductive about like narratives and relationships between people because as you said right like there's been like this building this idea of the model minority mm-hmm. to like and also to ensure as well still like even sometimes this has been fuel to like further oppress black people. And this idea of the modern minority has not been created by Asians themselves. This no. has been created by white Americans to like continue that narrative of like Martin Luther King at the time would have said like the Negro people, the Negro people that they would, are not able to access and improve their lives. But the reality was that there'd be more bar- barriers to like people that were enslaved and then yeah. they were liberated. There were more barriers to access jobs and access opportunities, even when they left the South to go to the North. And, uh, and that's very important also to acknowledge. And I really appreciated the fact that you highlighted like the global scales that we get like into the fact that. In the end, even when we are like minorities in the Western world, like in your case, you are in the US, in my case, mm-hmm. um, in Italy, like we can sometimes get into the circle of exploitation. For example, yeah. when it comes to clothing, when it comes to fast fashion, like most of the industry are, industries are in 
countries like Bangladesh, for example. So you get into that circle that sometimes we feel like exploitation like globally and we need to find, as you said, a way to ensure that we protect also people that are outside of our borders and empower them and ensure that they don't uh, simply get exploited. Um, I think that's very important because also between that circle, like there is the fact that access production and oftentimes use clothes in that case, they end up in Africa, for example. So mm. like it's important to see like the global interconnection when it comes to struggles and find like how to like unlock and ensure that everyone has access, as you said, to like better opportunities and like to stop exploitation and go beyond like the capitalism the capitalistic system. I think that's very important. Like yeah. And uh, moving on, like um I think you touch on that a little bit, but I guess we can I don't know, maybe there is still something that you can share about. So like for example, when it comes to anti-blackness, I think sometimes like anti-blackness is common between, I say also between the African black diaspora. And mm. uh, we can see that also like in other communities. I think when I was little, I was a little bit naive about like anti-blackness between communities, especially POC communities that were not black. I was a little bit naive, although sometimes my mom, she will mention about like, for example, the Northern African communities, she will mention that, yeah, like they see us differently. And I would be like, hmm, and I start thinking about it. But still, like in my head as a black Italian woman, I would think like we're all POC and we're coming all together. So by the way, for those listening, POC, I mean, people of color. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, and I was like, yeah, like, I mean, like, and I was just, for me, it was just like, oh, we are like others in this country, which is predominantly white and we all come together. And so I kind of got more aware about like anti-blackness between like non-black community, non-black communities. Um, I think non-black POC communities, I think when I moved to London, when people started telling me like oh like you know like between I don't know in this case I think they mentioned like the Indian community like oh there is that like anti-blackness so I started to learn more about like anti-blackness and different issues regarding um, like the black community a relationship with the Asian community and so on so I have like this aunt question which is like do you think there is a natural tension like between like the Asian and African diaspora? Like, how do you think we can really come together? Yeah, um, extremely hard question. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, there is tension there. Mm. Um, and I think, and easily could be wrong, mm-hmm. I think there is tension even within the Asian community mm. about people who have darker skin. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that manifest that manifest within anti-blackness, right? Because mm. um, in Asia, if you go into you know your local grocery store and you're looking to buy body wash or face wash, they sell whitening washes. Mm. Actually, I would say the majority of the washes you're going to find are going to be skin whitening. Mm. 
and it is this idea that the whiter your skin is the the better um Mm. for whatever reason and well i'm not going to say for whatever reason it's it's based in white supremacy yep (laughs) yep um and colonialism and yes so it's one of those things that are bred into the culture. And so, yeah, when I, I imagine when people who are from, you know, Asia come to the United States or, you know, go, go to somewhere where they're, they're dealing with people who are from the African diaspora, I'm sure that manifests in a way that is terrible, um, mm. absolutely terrible. Um, and it comes from this this self-loathing that they, you know that we've been ingrained with that our skin needs to be whiter. So if their skin is not whiter than ours, then they're lesser than us. Mm. Um, and I have seen you know a- anti-blackness within the Asian community, and it's it's something that the Asian community does not talk about enough um, mm. because it is it is something that it's through and through. So um, I live in Philadelphia now, which is uh, a pretty black city compared Mm. to where I grew up which is just outside of Seattle Washington in a city called Tacoma where I would say that you know there's a huge Asian population and there is a black population there too but it's nothing like it you know there is on the east coast and the the tension that I saw there well I'm not going to say the tension the the anti-blackness that I saw there uh, was a matter of exposure I would say um, mm. Asian people I grew up that were Asian would say the N word. Um, mm. and that one, one part of that is just being, I'm not going to excuse it as young and immature, but I think that's part, part of it. Um, but two is this, this, this understanding that your parents wouldn't check you in the Asian community on mm. anti-blackness. Um, mm. because again, this is just so ingrained in our, our culture that, it there there had to be a level of unlearning and relearning yep. that that had to occur mm. um so how do we i, I guess the, the question is how do we how do we come together um mm. and i wish i had a simple answer mm. um but it's not going to happen until we have really hard conversations mm. right yeah. um there's a lot to unpack there uh, because as you as you alluded to earlier, Asians, I, I guess this is also me having a very U.S. centric um, perspective because that's, you know, that's where I live and that's where most of my lived experience is. Um, as Asians being touted as the model minority, mm. it has further oppressed the black community here. Yep. Um, and Asians have leaned into it because that's what has been economically beneficial Mm. uh that's you know that's how how we get unotherized that's that's our holding on to that assimilation Mm. um and it's it's really sad because that's that comes with self-hate right yeah to 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 hate how dark your skin is is Mm. uh, absolutely terrifying um it's heartbreaking. And that's, I, I would say that's something that we could probably come together on. It's like being brainwashed in a way or educated in a way where we have to learn to stop hating ourselves. Hmm. Um, have to stop. We have to learn to stop hating our skin. Yeah. Um, and part of that process is I, I think once we accept that we are who we are is we will learn to, to accept others. Um, 
and you know there there's so much more than that right like yeah. the the asian and black experiences are very different depending on where you are in the world um and so just sitting down and being willing to educate yourself being willing to be in a safe and vulnerable and scary place sometimes in terms of conversation mm-hmm. uh it needs, I think that's the only way that we're, we're going to be able to come together on, on issues and um, really come together to talk about white supremacy. Um, And it has happened, you know, let's not, (laughs) let's not deny the fact that it has happened in the past. Yes. Asian, Asians and blacks have have come together in the past to, to fight for immigration Mm -hmm. um, among, you know, civil rights, among other issues, but it, it didn't start that way. Um, yeah. And it's one of those things, especially when we talk about globally, that uh, it, it comes down to, at least in my opinion, a lot of hard conversations, a lot of trying to understand, a lot of um, understanding what is beyond the the sheen of culture. Mm. Um, what is beyond what I can assume about another person. Um, mm. What is beyond what I could even learn about another person by visiting their country? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's it's a matter of exposure and a, a matter of a lot of tough conversations. Yeah. If I were to give a simple, I guess. <laughs> the simple answer. Always said like, that was the simple answer. That's it. That was the simple answer. Like yeah. Do you have any ideas on how the Asian and African diaspora can come together? Oh yeah, like. Mm. That's a good question, Tyler. Like, I didn't I mean... <laughs> get interviewed. Okay. So for me, like, personally, what I understood, like, definitely the things that you shared about, like, I think the similar experiences, because when you're talking even about, like, the darker skin, like, that's something present even between, like, the Black community. Like, it's something, like, very present even between the African diaspora. So I think that's something as well to unpack and where people can come together. And that's something, like, that's a conversation that I had with some of my friends that I became friends with here in Rome was actually, and that they are Asian, was actually about, like, talking about skin and how darker skin is perceived between the Asian community and also between like the uh, and the African community and the African diaspora. So I think definitely having more conversation about that, even that has helped me as well to find more connections and the similarities. Yes, we have different experiences, but there are some experiences that they are similar to a certain extent. Like yeah. this, for example, this one, when it comes to like, darker skin and I'm like I think I grew up also very aware of that because my mom she's significantly lighter than my dad and my dad is a darker skinned man and I think I from a very young age I understood seeing my parents that okay there is something here about like being dark and light and there is then for some reason I already picked up that being lighter is better. So like and unpacking those experiences I think is very important. And it's important to I think acknowledge like the different histories and the different like 
the different histories, the similarities. I think, like, for example, even just thinking about the food, for example, like, there are some foods that are similar. Like, within Philadelphia that I tried, like, wait, what was it? Like, a peanut soup when, like, I think when we went to a Malaysian restaurant. And mm. when I tried a peanut soup, I, I was like, wait, this reminds me of, like, this Ghanaian uh, Ghanaian peanut soup and I was like oh wait like they use peanut butter to cook their food and I was like oh wow like I didn't know that and I was like oh wait like there, like, there are so like so many similarities between foods and things like that that I think we need to talk about more and also talk about when there is also unfairness as well and arm as well like I think it broke my heart actually seeing like videos where like Asian elders have been attacked by like black men I don't want to blame them just being black and black on Asian crime I don't want to talk it about it that way but mm. I think probably we still need to understand what's happening there and some of the tension that have occurred there I think it's important that we talk about it and like I, I think it's important we talk about it in a way that we don't demonize um each other especially demonized black men that already like they already demonized enough between society and right. i think one more thing that comes to my mind i think something else was coming to my mind but i may have forgot about it um but yeah i think it's important like yeah recognizing arm i think is also like uh, recognizing for example like right now like there are a lot of chinese businesses and uh, the chinese government is coming to africa for example mm. and I, I think like and that's kind of a new colonial experience. So even talking about that, I think is important because you have instances, like I remember I read like about things that will happen like in Nigeria, for example, where like the Chinese community will have restaurants that all the Chinese people can access. And you're just there like, wait, <laughs> like, yeah. wait, this is like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, on one side, I understand like the fact that you want to build a community and maybe build a space, but also you are in another country which you are taking resources from. And it would be nice if we all interact between each other and we try not to like close and lock. And also I think one thing that also stood out last year uh, about the pandemic when China was reopening like at some point the blame of the virus went towards like people of African descent and I was like how did we go like from like blaming people from uh, pe people of Asian descent to now like see that in China you see like videos in which like black customers are not allowed into black shops or black yeah. customers with like Chinese partners as well, like asked to like see and eat outside. Like you see things like that, you're just there like, like, and on one side I was like, well, like I'll be stacking up for you guys though. Like, come on. Like, and right. on the other hand, I'm just there like, oh, like I think some, there is something here that we still need to like talk about and ensure that um, we can come together, like call out things and ensure that, like everybody's protected and uh, like yeah so so yeah i think that's like kind of my my like ideas i guess of like yeah like it's kind of similar to what you shared about like coming together discussing um like having more conversations but actually having those hard ones like like very yeah. hard topics are so needed because i think you cannot fix 
a problem without naming it and i think that's my new motto now in life <laughs> like so yeah i think well, that, yeah it, it's also right like it's uh amongst the conversations is also the chance to re-educate yourself yes uh, right like it you know talking about how china is china or chinese businessmen are coming into africa mm. um you know that's something that we need to constantly educate ourselves on right like yeah. that's that's developing news yeah um and so i think a lot of people what i think what a lot of people get frustrated with when it comes to social justice movements is accepting the fact that you're constantly wrong yeah. um and i i i sit with that discomfort with confidence that i know that you know tomorrow i will learn something new and my opinion will change um and if i'm not doing that then you know (laughs) i'm doing a disservice to the people around me and so Mm. yeah i I think this constant education um and re-education because it's not something that we're learning in our elementary middle or high schools or you know you know, even in higher ed, oftentimes it's it's talked around, unless mm. you're you're in a discipline that that talks directly around um, race and identities. Uh, that that we need to to be doing the legwork, and we need to be be the ones who are taking the time out of our day to to read about each other, to learn yep. about each other, um, yep. because you know <laughs> we're not going to get this information any other way. That's it. Yeah, that's it. So. We got the last few questions. Like, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> we got, we say, like, we got the last few questions, and I'm sure we will go in some deep conversation. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, like, please let it not be a two part epi- episode. But I, think we oh, can. My. Like, I don't yeah. think anyone wants to listen to my voice that much. <laughs> oh, no. Like, no, your voice, it's fine. I, don't worry. I think it's my voice, but no worries. Your voice no. is fine. <laughs> like, yeah. So, when it comes to, like, um, I think probably something that a struggle that uh, talking about coming together, I guess like a struggle that's common for both black women and Asian men is about like the perceive how they perceived us, mm. especially when it comes to attractiveness. And uh, I remember like during one of our conversations, like here in Rome, uh, like you shared about like how Asian men often are perceived as attractive and masculine and i remember when you left my office i was like wait which part of the conversation did i miss i was like wait because i was like wait (laughs) because for me i'm just there like i think asian men are fine (laughs) like i mean like i think they're attractive so i don't know like i was like wait what did i miss here so like i kind of started doing my own research but i think people i don't really like as much as aware i think of like how Asian men are perceived, for example. So can mm-hmm. you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, so there's there's a lot there. Um, because I guess to, to start off, we can talk about like Asian women and how they're perceived mm-hmm. well, yeah. um, and how they're, they're over-sexualized. Yes. And, you know, fetishized and highly sought after um, mm-hmm. physically. And so the, I would say the counterbalance to that is people don't see I, I, I see in a lot of ways that people don't see Asian men as suitable suitable partners for them. Mm. Um where people oftentimes will sit be like or 
at least in, in Western societies, it's very common to see Asian women with white men. <clears throat> um, and I think that that plays into a lot of power dynamics that are under the surface or that are already there. Um, and, you know, maybe it's just me having a busted face <laughs> um, uh, being, being an Asian man. But no, I, I think in, in, in all honesty, I think it comes to uh, the fact that Asian men are often emasculated. Mm. Uh, they're not perceived as um, you're, they're not perceived with traditional masculine traits like physical mm. strength. Mm. um you know being able to provide protection and security Mm. um in some ways i I think it's interesting because there's also that component of like asian men being bread breadwinners right Mm. like the 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 understanding that asians do do well economically um or the the belief that asian men do or asians do do well economically um but there there is this component of like asian men are undesirable and you know it at a young age, it starts with like small penis jokes, right? Oh yeah, that's true. Oh my gosh. Right, but in as people grow up, they if they if they've never yeah they that's that's seriously what they believe. Um, there are people mm-hmm. who are full grown adults that that's you know that's their understanding of Asian men, and mm-hmm. it's this this idea again, it's otherizing. Um, yeah, and on top of that, it's also. Uh, I think also it's the fact that Asian men, I'm not going to speak. For, <laughs> here's the hard thing. Cause Asian <laughs> is such a large diaspora, right? Oh, yeah. I was going to say Asian men are not aggressive, but they are. Um, I would say some Asian communities or some Asian men are not super aggressive. Um, and even, even that I think is a, is a broken phrase. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I guess with with Western societies in their perception of Asian men, there's always this this belief that Asian men are second tier. Mm. Um, a- Asian men are always the sidekick. Asian men are always, you know, there there's the there's a glass ceiling of sorts to to how well Asian men can do, and it's always behind white, um, mm. and it it's frustrating because Asians are forced to play into it to a certain extent um, mm. because like that means see I don't even know where I'm going with <laughs> with this right thought. I think I think they perceive as not threatening so not threatening to the system of power I guess like right that, so, that, yeah. yeah go ahead do you have do you have more on that or yeah, to... I'm just I'm trying to follow your talk, but I feel like what you're trying to say is the fact that like it keeps the system going and like the system of power in place and people the same people access the same resources and being perceived as well as standard of beauty because oftentimes standard of beauty and being see, being seen as desirable it is power. And it is better access to economic opportunities and to privilege. So in the moment that you're perceived as attractive, like your life can't really can really change sometimes. 
and I still I say this as myself. It's <laughs> like even looking at myself, like I'm just there, like I went from being like an ugly duckling to like I was trying to become a swamp. And like and, <laughs> and all of this, I'm just there, like I still don't know how people's attitudes something can change in the moment like you appreciate as attractive. So I think that plays into like, yeah, as you were saying that like Asian men are expected to like be behind. Like yeah, there's that. there's there's the the non-threatening aspect mm. of, you know, Asian men that, you know, they're not in they're not in competition to be number one. Mm. Um and especially when it comes to dating or when it comes to relationships, um there there's an allure to people there there's how do you say this? When when especially in dating there there's an emphasis on confidence Mm. and when asian men are constantly told that they're not number one they're always you know unattractive or otherized in in one way or another um then they internalize that and so that confidence also doesn't protrude the same way that it would Mm. if you were a a white male Mm. um and so yeah I <laughs> yeah makes sense yeah it makes sense I feel like it makes sense like yeah I feel like it makes sense like what what you said like yeah you can internalize like self-hate you can internalize um like yeah the perception that society has about you even when sometimes you are a confident person so mm-hmm. but because society is reacting to you in a different way from the way that you perceive yourself then that starts impacting your confidence. And right. yeah, so that, like, yeah, I feel like it makes it makes sense. And like, it's, it, the things that are, I can't relate, like, yeah, the things that I understand it, like, yeah. Well, it, I, I guess, I guess to also another way to to look at it, it's, it's the way that we see white beauty mm. um, and as seeing it as standard. You know, a standard as, like, as yeah. the standard so mm-hmm. so you know people in the asian community get you know surgeries on their eyes their face their yeah. nose mm-hmm. to look more white yeah um and that goes back to you know the skin whitening creams the the body washes um mm-hmm. all of the different products that were constantly sold uh yeah. to to better assimilate to better mm-hmm. um to better assimilate to western societies even within Asian cultures, right? So it's like yeah. you, you could be you can be in Bangkok and still find all of these products because yep. like the end goal is to be what you see on your TV screen, right? Mm, yeah. Um, and when it comes to yeah, Asian masculinity like that, that is so conflicting because like with, with masculinity in general, I would say there's an emphasis on oftentimes not caring about physical appearance. Yeah, for, I would say I, I'm not even gonna say often that I'm gonna say with white men, it's often an attractive attribute for them not to care, to be messy, to be, you know, I, I think oftentimes people find that to be more physically attractive than somebody who is very clean and put together. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, you know, it, the conflict of the, the conflict that 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 there is there is like if an Asian man wants to look more like a white man, he has to do all of these things. To, to try and attain that that beauty standard mm. um and so there 
there's like there's a couple layers there in terms of like how we again how we perceive ourselves in a world that is having a hard time in perceiving and accepting us yeah absolutely thanks for sharing tyler so <laughs> as we're talking about like beauty like now we see like kind of asian culture becoming more popular like especially with k-pop and k-beauty mm-hmm. and you know i love my k-dramas also listeners to this podcast they know every now and then i mention a k-drama <laughs> so, like, so like in all of this like how do people like don't like don't don't end up like fetishize fetishizing oh my mm-hmm. goodness that word <laughs> is coming to me like yeah like um like Asian culture, do not objectify it or appropriate it or disrespect it? Like how do people like kind of avoid that? I guess the the easiest question that you can ask yourself is like, why? Why are you doing something? Why are you saying something? Why are you choosing to post something, right? Um, Mm. I think usually that is the easiest way to figure out if you are being disrespectful, um, Mm. if you are being, and if it's, if it's I'm posting this Asian thing and I'm not Asian to add to my social capital mm. and oftentimes maybe possibly actual capital, right? Like, mm. you know, to make more, then, then you start to have to ask questions about like, okay, what is my, what is fair use for this? Mm. Um, because I, I, I feel weird about, I feel weird sometimes about the, the conversation around appropriation. Cause I think, people should be able to appreciate other people's cultures. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, that can, that can come in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if Benedicta, you want it to be a, a chef and you decide that your, your passion is Asian foods, mm-hmm. I don't think that should, should be a barrier for you in not being able to cook Asian food. Right. Yeah. Um, I believe that you should be able to cook Asian food, but if you are cooking Asian food, you should, probably also honor you know certain asian traditions when cooking that food um and making sure that you're not creating some type of italian fusion for example (laughs) uh uh, to to try and you know turn a quick profit um Mm. because that's where it gets confusing and you know if you can find a way to be like oh like this is how people enjoyed you know let's use soup dumplings for example this is how people enjoy soup dumplings in shanghai and you know i think it would be a wonderful appetizer for an italian restaurant like an italian menu then figure out a way to integrate that where it's respectful of the fact that you know this is coming from shanghai Mm -hmm. Um, this is how it's eaten in shanghai and the reason why i think it fits well with the rest of the the food that i'm providing or the you know the rest of the courses on the menu is mm. because of X, Y, and Z. And it, it really just comes down to asking yourself, like, why am I doing this? Mm. Uh, are you watching Korean drama to, you know, or are you posting about Korean dramas to virtue signal to your Korean friends that you, you know, you're watching um, and you, you may understand uh, a bit more about their culture. Or are you watching the Korean dramas and posting about it because like it excites you to see, um, I guess, other cultures mm-hmm. the way that their their relationships are um i, I guess formed on a screen mm-hmm. or the way that their art is displayed um yeah the the way that you know different artists are are able to i guess uh use language use culture to to tell different stories and to tell authentic stories um mm. 
you know, I think those are all things to to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Now you got a right point. And I think like what you mentioned about appropriation and appreciation, like mm. I think there is a fine line between that. Because if you're taking something, you say like, oh, this is absolutely new and you give it a new different name and you give it an all different something else, like that's appropriation. But when like you take something from a culture, as you said, and you honor it, you say where it comes from, for example, where mm. like it originates from, like that creates like a culture of appreciation instead right. of just exploiting and not taking into consideration people's cultures and histories. So I mm-hmm. think that's absolutely important. So uh, like, I guess this is final, final question, I guess. <laughs> uh, except you have something else to share. Like, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, like, you are an activist. You are formal activist. Like, correct me when I'm getting it wrong. And, uh, yeah, and uh, I think that's something that we have in common. Uh, also, like, amongst an activist, and I think that kind of, like, uh, that's, like, sometimes I have some deep conversations. So what are the joys and the challenges of activism? Ah, um, so I, how would I define myself? I used to be an organizer. I would say now I am an activist. Mm. Um, and the, the reason why I want to delineate the two is I, I would say an organizer is actively trying to bring together a community, um, to reach certain goals. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, that's actively what they're pursuing. Whereas an activist, um, I would say that's more of a passive or it can be more of a passive pursuit. Mm. Uh, you know, organizers, I often think of it as like their day job, you know, or yeah. actually often for organizers, it's a lifestyle because yeah. it's, it's very uh, time consuming and you, you really live in the work. Yeah. Uh, whereas like at this, this point um, being an activist for me it is defined by what I learned through organizing how I can apply that to my job, how I can apply that to, you know, the spaces that I occupy mm. um, and how can I continue to uplift voices that are, you know, sometimes mine, sometimes other people's um, that reach a certain political message oftentimes. Mm. Um, so what are the joys and what are the challenges of activism? Ah, the joys they're <laughs> there there are many um but they're all subtle mm. i will say that they are all subtle joys um and it, it comes in the form of getting to know your community better mm. uh, it comes in the form of learning so as somebody who enjoys to learn like that that's one of the the most brilliant parts about activism is like you're constantly learning as i said earlier like you have to to constantly accept that you are probably wrong hmm. um, <laughs> and and try and get better about being right but not being right for being right sake but being right because you know you learned and became a better person hmm. um now the challenges of being of, of activism 
<laughs> how long do we have um, um i don't uh, know so like do right. you want to go for a second episode i don't I know mean, <laughs> it's constantly having to weigh uh the the harm and benefits of the work that you're doing mm. uh because i think that with anything that you're doing especially if you're you're an activist within an organization you know there's always questions about like who is funding you right mm. Um, mm. you know right like who who what community are you reaching? You know, where are your blind spots, right, in your community? Because mm. as people, as people, we have lived experience and oftentimes we grasp towards the the things that are closest to our lived experiences. But we, we have these blind spots just outside of that lived experience that are people that we're missing out on that could benefit from our work and could be unifying um, or we, we could be unified with. Um, it, what are the challenges? with activism uh, it really is it can be emotionally draining depending on what you're working on amen to that uh, yeah it can it can really get difficult uh to to see people that you build community with go through such hard times because you know mm-hmm. you're usually not organizing or being an activist uh, because things are all happy and good right yep. <laughs> um, you're That's usually it. in these spaces because things are are difficult and you are facing people and having to have conversations with people who either don't believe things are difficult or don't care that things are difficult for you and your community or the community that you're working within. Mm. Uh, and that can be be draining because you're having to walk them through your, your experience and oftentimes talk about your trauma or talk about other people's lived trauma. Yeah. Um, and constantly having to be sensitive to other people's trauma um Mm. you know that is that is also something that um people don't talk about as being something that's taxing uh but it is right like we we have to be constantly being cautious about how we operate within a space is 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 taxing um and i would say is one of the most under undervalued things when it comes to an ally Mm. Uh, realizing that you know whenever they're operating in a space that is not theirs to traditionally operate within um that they are doing some work to make sure that they are being sensitive to others and that's a good ally right yeah. <laughs> uh, there yep. are people that yep. come into spaces and you know don't have a second thought about how how much space they are taking um or how they are talking down on others or not sharing or not creating an atmosphere where others feel comfortable. Um, mm. But no, I think, I think being activist is extremely rewarding uh, when you get to see people in your community benefit from your work Yeah, um, in, the, in the most simplest terms. And that, and that can be as simple as making it easier for others to understand, mm. you know, where where you and everyone else that you're you're an activist with comes from Mm. um but it also can be as as major and as grand as getting like a policy changed or you know uh completing a a strong campaign where Mm. you're re-educating your community um but yeah so lots lots of things to weigh what are what are some things that you enjoy about being an activist and what are some things that um you don't so much enjoy but you understand as part of the work so the things I enjoy, I think, is like the empowerment that you give to yourself. Like, as you said, like you, you oftentimes have to work through trauma 
and that's the trauma of the people that you work with or your own trauma so I think they've been able to work through that and then be able to support other people share it in order to build also a sense of community like that's that's definitely one of the joys for sure and also the fact of building community that's for sure I think that's definitely about the joys and also the fact of like interacting I think with different people and I think my favorite one has always been like going to schools and maybe seeing like that one black kid that's looking at you and be like oh she looks like me and she's talking about things that people don't understand and I think that's definitely one of the joys to be able to share your experience and having people to understand and maybe even be that person and that representation for that person or multiple people uh, of like be able to see themselves. I think that's like that's something definitely about the joys. Uh, definitely be able to see like change as well. That also about the joys. Um, the pain and the challenges i guess uh is sometimes like sometimes that community doesn't always come easy sometimes that um sense of community sometimes can and i think that's kind of been my struggle in the last few months has been the fact that the community or sometimes can like break especially between a group and organization um Mm. can especially if you don't deal with all the issues that you're supposed to deal with and have those hard conversations that can be frustrating for sure and that can also be very painful and a traumatic experience as well because you see this space as a space uh, as a safe space and and when this space does no longer become safe that's another challenge um and also i think the fact that it can be a challenge as you say it's emotionally draining and can be a challenge of your mental health because you feel like you you have the eyes on you because as you're an activist you are as much as as you said like you're supposed to do like those mistakes right to learn but mm-hmm. also like sometimes you feel like you don't have that space to make those mistakes for the yeah. world that you cover and so that can be very hard sometimes and you feel like oh my gosh I have the eyes on me and also like it's having that weight you feel like sometimes you have a weight of an old generation or a or like and feeling that weight and feeling that weight between your action and feeling that if I don't do this this would not happen like Mm -hmm. that can sometimes be very draining because sometimes you come to the point that you push yourself to the way that sometimes you damage you damage to a certain extent your body your mind your spirit you come to damage yourself because you feel that weight of that generation which it can be a great fuel but sometimes it can also like hold you back and it can sometimes be that break as well because you'd be like oh like you know sometimes you'd be like oh do I need to I need to show up now but I don't feel great and like how do you do that <laughs> it's just right. that pressure and so I think sometimes the reason especially I feel between Italian activism circles I think there isn't enough conversation about mental health 
and I think that's something that needs to happen more. I see that it's starting, but I think there is uh, there is a a lot more to be done about that. Yeah, and yeah, I even you you, you touched on something earlier, and I I kind of giggled because it was the the fact of like as an activist, you do feel like. Well, one, we need to be making mistakes. You don't feel that as an activist, but as mm. an activist, you feel the, the constant pressure of having to be better than what you already are yep. um, for the people that you're trying to lead um, mm. and the, the community that you're, you're trying to support. And that was one of my fears <laughs> on hopping on the <laughs> podcast today uh, because I was like, I, I can come to this, this podcast with the, the lived experience of being an Asian man, mm. but like, no much more than that um and i don't want people to expect more than that because i've never organized within the asian community mm, right um, yeah I, and you know i i just want to be sure that you know there's that understanding that we are all trying to to do so many things at once mm. we have to give ourselves grace yeah um, and i'm i'm working on that and that's part of my what what i've discovered this last year and finding value in myself and you know I guess tying things, you know, all back together is like <laughs> really just making sure that I know where my limits are because I yeah. I've passed my limits before, and mm. as you said, it it leaves long term impacts uh, mm. on our our mental health. It, it leaves impacts on our body. It it can be taxing. Yeah, indeed. Well, Tyler, on this note, <laughs> may I say thank you. May I say thank you. Is there any final nugget? that you want to share or something that you want to share with the people? Oh, um, if you're ever in Italy, (laughs) (laughs) uh, there are, if you're ever in Rome, there are good Filipino restaurants. And if you know, there's also Donner Kebabs, which are, are great affordable ways to get through a semester of eating when you don't want to only eat Italian food. Um, that is the, the nugget I'd like to share with people. Um, and also just saying thank you, Benedicta, for creating, um, for having me on and, and having a, a space where we can have some of these conversations out in the open. Uh, and it, it's, it's funny because it reminds me of whenever we used to, to chat in your office about whatever random news topic came up for the day and how it related to the lives that we were living yeah absolutely no thank you like seriously like this of course you were gonna share about the food like of course <laughs> like he loves his food so much so of course he was going to share about the food oh. so like yeah like now the far right people will come here and be like i'm attacking italian traditional food like of course <laughs> they will come for me now because of tyler <laughs> don't get over it they will get over it, no worries. And they should try Filipino food and donut kebab as well. Like, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Like, thank you, Tyler, so much for sharing and taking your time and participating into this podcast. And I'm actually glad that we were able to have this conversation that we used to have in, our office, in, in my office. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. And thank you. So, Tyler, by the way, like, you, do you want to share, like, how can people reach out to you? Oh, um, yeah, I guess you could, <laughs> I didn't even think about this. Um, yeah, you can, you can follow me on Instagram at, at the underscore Tyler Lum, T-Y-L-E-R-L-U-M. 
and on Twitter is just at Tyler Lum. Uh, that would be the easiest way to reach me. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. And Thank you. you know, like where to follow the Chronicles of a Black Italian Woman, which is at Chronicles of A B R double double V um, on Instagram, or you can follow also my personal page, which is at Smiley Benet on Instagram. And do I have a Twitter? I know. And uh, yeah, every one of these, I want to say thank you for tuning in with us. And uh, yeah, have a great day, week, month, uh, and whatever time it is that you're listening to this I hope you have a great one take care bye ciao ciao